Hi Richard. Hello James. How are you doing? It's been a, well, it hasn't been a while for us, but it's been a while for uh, the eager listener. Yes, yeah, it's been ages. Yeah, it's been a few months, but um, we're kind of on a, I'm on a quiet spell at the moment because I'm working on a novel. Yeah. And I'm writing something. Um, so the Glicksnar project is uh, not the priority at the moment, but will be soon. Yeah, so keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> Are you excited? Are you excited for when it returns? For your novel? No, that's never going to get written. But the, uh-huh. uh, when, when the Lake Snare project starts up again. Uh, I am. I believe when I see it. Yeah, we're hoping to do an outdoor performance uh, in this tall town. Oh, really? When everyone's going to be vaccinated and free and easy and we can hang out outside. No, don't start. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen to that. Um, None of your cynicism, please. Yeah. I mean, please God, but, uh, you know, it'll be a miracle. Now, on this episode, uh, we talked to Kay Cable, mm-hmm. correct? C- correct, yeah. You talked to her, not me. I did. And, yeah. um, her and I, we had a good conversation about the Earls of Kerry. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know more about this than I, the background. So maybe you could give me a quick rundown or give the listener a rundown. Of what uh, of what uh yeah, is gonna so, cover. No, no. Um Thomas Fitzmorris uh was the first early Kerry. Yes. But he wasn't the first Fitzmorris to have a title in Kerry. No, no, no. He, that, I mean, they, they were lords of Kerry uh, since the 1300s. Okay. And it, he got an upgrade. Like, there's five kinds of lords. There's like a lord, ordinary lord. There's a viscount. There's an earl. There's something else. Then there's something else. A baron. <laughs> a duke. Baron. Yes. Yeah. So that, uh, I think they got, they got upgraded, yeah, to earl, which is like third, third highest lord. What would you be? What would I be? Yeah. I'm only a peasant. What do you mean by what would I be? <laughs> You'd be a peasant. I'd be a Viscount. Oh, you mean like would as in that kind of classical, what would you wish for? Yes. I would I was in England, that kind of way. Uh, what would I would? Just a classic it? hypothetical question, you know? Yeah. I would. But you said peasant, so uh, we'll, we'll no. move on. You'd, you'd wish you were a peasant. I would I was a, a peasant, yeah. Um, so K. Gable is a qualified genealogist mm-hmm. and historian, and she also runs a website uh, called KerryAncestry.com. Uh, MyKerryAncestors.com. My right. And uh, she, yeah, I think she's like a genealogist, genealogist for hire, very accomplished. If you want yeah. to find out about your family... And they're Kerry based, especially. She is the one to get on to. Like we were talking there earlier about how in our family there are two projects. Like your family and my own family are working on our own genealogies, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to us, but it's not so interesting to other people because it's barely interesting to us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think when you're reading about the Fitzmorrises, it's a bit more exciting. Because, and that's what we're going to cover in this episode. Yeah. 
it's exciting because it's because they define what society was like back then. So exactly, <clears throat> but even the stories within are there's a bit of drama to them because you, mm. like you say, Thomas Fitzmaurice was the first Earl of Kerry, and he sort of fought with uh, King James II, and then was granted his earldom by who? Do you remember? Well, it's weird because King James II lost to William of Orange. Uh, yeah. So I think it's 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 not clear how did he do it. So he must have been a good operator. But um, the mystery is for two generations, for this guy, uh, Thomas, his father, William, and his grandfather, Patrick, they'd been living in England uh, away from their ancestral lands, campaigning to get them back and... I don't know what they were doing over there. Like, how were they even making money if they didn't have land? Uh, but somehow this guy, Thomas, despite fighting for the wrong side, managed to get uh, to get it back and get an upgrade to become an earl. So, yeah, uh, it's interesting. It's, uh, Kay kind of speculates a bit about this with you, I think, in, in it. But, uh, you know, it might be something to do with who he married and that kind of stuff. But uh, Yeah. And from the sounds of it, he was a real force of personality. Uh, which is probably yeah. the kind way of putting it. He sounds like a bit of a tyrant. He was called a tyrant, wasn't he, by his grandson, yeah. 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 Um, and then he was trying to make the area a political force, you know? He was trying to make his mm. earldom a political force. And then over the course of the next two generations, and in with his grandson, um, really the Fitzmaurice family declined into sort of his grandson, uh, what was his grandson's name again? Uh, Francis Thomas. Francis Thomas was sort of a foppish dandy, living in France, never having seen Kerry. Living in Versailles, actually. Living in Versailles. And then yeah. just slowly selling off the family lands. For, so I think the first Earl got 90,000 acres, mm-hmm. which Francis Thomas sold off over the course of his life to fund his life in France, in Versailles. Yeah. I mean, was like, he had it, like two hotels, like our, and a hotel wasn't like a business, that was just like where you brought all your guests, your own private guests and stuff. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, he, Kay gets into this a lot, doesn't she? But she's got like, the lifestyle he led in France was like... Unreal. Uh, unreal, yeah. Uh, uh, and then by the end of it, he had 300 acres. And the story sort of ends with uh, the French Revolution. Yeah, he he gets kicked out of France in the end. Uh, he escapes France ju- just at the end of the, just before, um, <clears throat> and he loses all his property over there because of the French Revolution. Yeah, and uh, he comes back, but he kind of he doesn't he doesn't like li- like he doesn't end up in tragedy. I think he ends up getting like. He has sold all his land, but the promise is, is that the person who buys it, um, I think Richard Hare was the guy who bought most of it, had to keep him living in wealth until he dies. So this guy, you know, got rid yeah. of all his family estate, but like he lived to his dying days in luxury. So yeah, what's the moral the lesson dig- there? <laughs> it's not the most dignified existence, though, is it? I don't know. Yeah, I guess not. Well, I mean, to you or I, I take it, but I can imagine for an earl, it's probably not. These people, a lot of it is about their legacy. So presumably Francis Thomas lived well, but his son 
or his children were. He didn't of, have any children. Oh. Uh, well then, yeah, I suppose he did get off in the end, yeah. didn't he? Yep. It's kind of a story. Of course, can't get into too much of it. Getting into too much. Uh, yeah, I think that's a taster. But uh, it shows you like this is what Kay is going to kind of describe for us, yeah. and that's what her book is about as well. The book is good. It's called "A Fall of Fitz Morris's Available in any bookstore. Um, check well it out. Worth a read. Well worth a so, read if you're interested in that kind of thing. So will we get into <laughs> it? Yeah. Why not? All right. Welcome to the Lixnall 1752 podcast. I'm James Moran, and I'm here with my guest, Kay Cable, who is an expert. Is that fair to say? On, no, I, uh, I don't know about that. You can find out when you get to the end, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> well, you know more we'll than me about the yeah. uh, fall of the Fitzmorrises, or the, the yes. life of the Fitzmorris family. Yes. So, first of all, maybe you could tell me, the Fitzmorrises were a family in the area for a very long time. Yeah, the Fitzmorrises came with the Normans. So they've been there since 1237. Now, I'm not, uh, you know, I, the book I've written is about the three earls. So I wouldn't be able to tell you uh, the full history of the 500 years that the Fitzmorrises no. were there. But their lineage is very well uh, documented, uh, who they married, when they married. And obviously the 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 heirs as they went along who became the next earl etc etc okay but towards the end of the 1600s they became the earls of Kerry well in 1692 Thomas became the first lord uh, of Kerry and the Baron of Blexna and he married Anne Petty so if we, we take as a kind of a date the Treaty of Limerick okay. uh, which was in 1691 the Articles of Limerick were written in October 1691 and in the following um, January, Thomas Fitzmaurice married Anne Petty, who was the only daughter of Sir William Petty, uh, who was, being, you know, he, he's a, a very significant figure in Irish history. He was uh, of the Down Survey, wasn't he? That's right, yeah. And he was in with, with Cromwell. Well, he had worked under everybody, under Cromwell, under Charles II, under James, and he, eventually we come then to James II, who was a Catholic king who took on William, or William of Orange and he, you know, were the two who were the combatants at this point. Mm. Yeah. Was it significant that Thomas Fitzmaurice married Anne Petty? I, I think it was very significant and it was something that, you know, there, I had to spend a lot of time researching and asking questions about because the Fitzmaurices had been Protestants. They had to become Protestants. Uh, probably in the early 1600s, if they were going to hold on to their land. Uh, The previous, we'll say, uh, for 150 years, they had held on through all kinds of, you know, uh, upheavals, both with the the neighbouring clans, which would be the O'Connors of Carrigafoyle or the Fitzgeralds of Desmond, and through kind of strategic alliances and marriages and confiscations, at times they lost their land, at other times they were able to get it back again. So by the time we come to the Willemite War, Willem and the Jacobites, we call it, which is James II, was the Catholic king, and he is fighting in Ireland with Willem, of, later became Willem of Orange. Now, the, it was the Kerry nobles who were Catholics fought on the side of James so the Fitzmaurices were Protestants at this point, And, to, you know, if they were to keep their land, you'd imagine that they would have fought with William. But it transpires that they didn't. 
uh, both Thomas and his father fought uh, on the side of James. And James lost, obviously, you know, it's a historic fact. And he retreated kind of a bit ignominiously, really, to France. And both Thomas, who later married Anne Petty, mm. went to France with his, and his father with King James. Now, it would seem to me very peculiar that an impoverished Irish uh, man, okay, he was a Protestant, but it, it, people weren't that tied up really in religion as we seem to be. But it would seem to me unusual that an impoverished man in Kerry would, uh, you know, gain the hand, as it were, of William Petty's only daughter mm-hmm. um, and obviously make a good marriage. And so soon after the Treaty of Limerick. So what do you think happened? Why? I think it was just a marriage of convenience. Um, and Petty brought dowry, large dowry. He, he was one of an old and aristocratic family. So they gained, the Petty's gained a kind of respectability, you know, and a place in Irish life, as it were. So even though the Fitzmorrises wouldn't have had a, had a lot of money, their name was worth something. Is that well, they, 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 you know, they, they, oh, people had come and gone. All solely people had been planted in Ireland over the years and mm. had just arrived from England and planted there. But they were there with the, They came with the Normans. They were more Irish than the Irish themselves. Eventually, yeah. Um, yeah. So they and they had ninety thousand acres. That was the next thing. They were t- they were lords of ninety thousand acres. So. He married Anne Petty. She brought money with her. Um, she brought, I think it was about uh, what would be equivalent to two million uh, pounds now. Uh, not all in cash. Um, she, uh, she, uh, she brought four thousand pounds at the time, the, the money equivalent at that time. And the rest of it really was in um, all investments and deeds and all that kind of thing. Out of interest, what sort of investments did they have at the time? Well, at the time, as I said, they had the 90,000 acres. Now, later in life, uh, we know that Francis, when we come to the third era, he had property in England as well. But when people talk about investments, it's mostly land. It's not like stocks and shares or anything like oh, that. Oh, not like stocks no. and shares, no. But for instance, they owned a coal mine in Durham in England. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Sure, this is when the third era is there, yeah. Yeah. When you said earlier that people weren't really as tied up in religion as mm-hmm. we are now, that's or as we expect, that sort of goes against what I think people would assume. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they would assume it. But, you know, they were very adaptable. They, they, they changed religion uh, according to what was required at the time. And you'll see that as we go along. They were, we're talking about different uh, class of people. They could you know, they need they needed to hold on to their land. That was their first priority. And they did whatever had to be done to hold on to it. So it was really, religion was just a matter Oh, religion of was there. And there was, uh, you know, kind of, I suppose, probably more class distinction than religious distinction. Uh, yeah. But they all got on very well with each other. There wasn't any, you know, at that level. I'm not talking about the tenants now at all. Yeah. But it was really just a matter of, of politics more than anything else. Yeah, I suppose. yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. That's exactly what it was, yeah. How was Thomas Fitzmaurice seen within the community? Like, was he? He was well, made. Once he, a- he, he married Anne Petty, and they had all this money as well. You, you I, I know, you were talked to John um, Knightley, and you know that they said, you know, they said to to have this great estate, which they did have mm. at the old court in Lexna. So they would have been kind of the royalty of Kerry at that time. Were they being popular? I mean, it's one thing to be royalty, but were they seen as legitimate? You, you, uh, well, the, the popular, you see, is one of our kind of um, era's words. You know mm. what I mean? Popularity didn't really come into it. Um, 
I think you're trying to get over like where they harshen their tenants. Is that what you meant? I guess I'm thinking if I was a labourer or if I was a tenant. Oh, well, you you wouldn't be thinking about them at all. It's like no. talking about the royal family, you know. It's just not, you know, you wouldn't be on the same level as them, no. You wouldn't, they wouldn't really inter- interact with your day No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. Um, because one thing we were wondering is, were these people seen as like moral leaders or were they seen as, were they seen as like patriarchs of the area? But they were uh, yes, but that's a good way to put it. Yeah, they were the local people that they looked. Everybody looked up to. Uh, all the land was around was owned by them. Most of the employment, if there was any, was given by them. You know, mm. so you just look at it from that point of view. Um, this Thomas was an irascible kind of a fellow. You know, he uh, didn't get on with people, but he wasn't harsh on on tenants or anything like that. He just was. Just I call it irascible. You know, he was difficult to get on with. Yeah, I've I've heard in his personal life anyway he was a, a complete tyrant. Yeah, he had a well des- I say he had a well deserved reputation for domineering his own family and his servants, I suppose, and terrorizing the neighbouring countryside. Now when I say terrorizing the neighbouring countryside, that would probably get to be to get people to um uh, adhere to the law or, you know, it might be uh, to keep up their property, something like that, you know. In terms of, would he be harassing the tenants or would he be harassing other... No, I don't think, he, I don't think he'd have too much direct... Uh, like, they all they all had agents, so they didn't have too much direct association with the tenants. But if he wanted something done, he wanted something done. You know, that was, that, that was okay. it. He wouldn't broke any kind of... Uh, anybody being lazy, or, you know. Or <laughs> he didn't... Um, he wouldn't suffer fools deadly. I suppose sometimes uh, agents can be more cruel than the ma- you know, than the master. You know, almost all. And in later years, that's what happened, yeah. Oh, really? Well, after they, they we see, these earls were part of the, they, they lived in the area. They'd been there for, as I said, for five, 500 years at that stage. They hmm. were uh, locals, whereas the new tenants that came in when all the Fitzmaurice land went were all non-resident and they had agents. And it was their agents later on in the, during the famine and along that area, who, you know, had, had some of them had a really bad name. Would the tenants have had a relationship with the Lord where they could have gone to talk to him about issues? No, I don't. I, 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 don't, I don't know uh, personally, but I'd say yeah. they'd have gone to the agent, surely. Oh, you know? I see. Yeah. Uh, Having said that, no, the, the later I transpired that Francis and... So we don't know as much about Thomas because we don't have any uh, first-hand accounts. But... Um, Thomas knew, or the, the Francis the third one, and uh, he seemed to know everything about like who could pay the rent. Maybe they were too old or too young, uh, you know. The reason um, he knew who could pay, and he knew who wouldn't pay. So to go through it, sort of chronologically, it was uh, Thomas who built the court at Lexnaw. Thomas and Anne Petty who built the old court. Yes, yeah. And I've heard a few different reasons as to why they did that. We were talking to one person who said it was purely. Like the the politics of having a nice house was very important. Yes. Another person said it was um, they were sort of trying to improve the area generally. Well, a lot of the yes, a lot of you see this is um, I find and um, other people who've researched them. There's a kind of in 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 the Irish mentality, and I'm Irish myself. In that um, mm. you think all landlords are bad. We're coming yeah. at this that they don't seem to be in that bad. And, and an awful lot of the stuff that they did, like um, putting out boards, um, building the canals, all this, they, not alone to beautify the place, but actually to improve the place. They were very much in, uh, there were a lot of landlords that time into improving 
This okay. is the case in England as well, yes. What was improving? Like, as improving a... was making, if you had land, you, you know, you improved the land so that it was better able to have crops on it. Um, you might have, if, uh, grow trees. The trees could be beautifying, but they would also probably be used later, uh, you know, as a crop in themselves. Um, obviously, the, the physical structure of the old court was beautifying the inside of the house. Um, so it, it, from what you're saying, which is correct, it was a mixture of improving and also of showing, like, and Petty's there now, she's come from London, she's come from the Petty household, where mm-hmm. she was used to living a, a much more gracious life than they had been living in uh, in uh, Lexna until that time. So, you know, it, it showed their importance as well. It's it, Nowadays, you know, somebody who makes good in life, he goes out and buys a Mercedes, isn't he? And mm-hmm. he gets a house and he might get another house in Portugal or something. So it's a similar thing, you know, of, of that era. The idea of improving, was it going on all around Ireland? Or it was, yeah. It, it was in the major ones, yeah. The, uh, in Killarney, for instance, uh, the Browns were improving the estate there, which is called the Kilmer, you know, the, the Kilmer House, Kilmer mm-hmm. Estate. Um, so they were, yes. And um, the Crosbys were another family whom the, um, one of the and Petty's daughters married into the Crosby family. They were in Artfert and they were improving. I was reading there were a lot of debates around the idea of improving. There's almost a sense of competition between people. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there was. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's almost like, you know, it's very like nowadays, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I'm doing well, but, you know, well, beside me thinks he's doing better and he's going to have a fancy yeah. car and a fancier house, you know, yeah. It's a funny mix because it's sort of a mixture of the personal and the economic, you know. Uh-huh. Like everybody wants a nice house, but there's also this sense of everybody wants a nice business or like there's competition between the elites in business. Yes, yeah. But for these people, their income and their home was essentially the same thing. Yes, yeah. They're trying to make a lot of money, but they're also trying to make it as beautiful as possible. Mm. It's sort of a... A concept we don't necessarily have today, you know? Yeah. When you go into the Facebook buildings, they're not really trying to make the place beautiful. Yeah. So, but among his personal life was uh, Thomas Fitzmaurice was not popular. He was not popular, yeah. And there, there were, his family um, kind of felt that he was too severe on them. He had um, his eldest son he, he didn't get on with. He got on quite well with his younger son. He, he just had a, a well-deserved reputation, as I said, for domineering yeah. his family, yeah. Was that sort of an old-fashioned mindset, or was it just a personal one? I have no idea about that. No, I couldn't tell you. I, I wonder, yeah. I wonder if um, fathers were supposed to be domineering at a time, you know, but it sounds like he had a particular reputation. Yeah. So his son took over after him. His son, uh, William, took over after him. Um, he had um, blotted his copybook a few times and um, his father had, uh, was kind of very impatient with him, really, I suppose. They didn't have a good relationship. Um, he had... Um, his mother and father would have what they would have wished for him. Well, he, he got a very good education. He was sent to Eton and he was sent to Oxford. And in my view, anyway, you wouldn't be sent to Eton and Oxford to come back and um, take over as a Lord of Kerry and be around Exna, it was a bit. It would be a bit excessive. Um, I think he was brought up really to by his mother to get into parliamentary life in England. You know, to go into the British Parliament. 
Um, so he, 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 they spent a lot of money on uh, this education. Uh, he chucked it. He left Oxford and um, he went uh, got him. He went in the Coldstream Guards. Like, like we could be here now for about three hours, and that is what I'll tell you. So we better go quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I've had to do this the other night, and it's very hard to condense it. But I anyway, know. I know the way. When you yeah. know so much about something. Yeah, you go on. Yeah. Anyway, he, 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 they wanted him to get married, obviously, to a titled person. You know, they wanted a dynastic marriage. That's what, you know, happened at those times. You didn't fall in love with somebody. It was decided who would bring the most money or land or something, power or something for you. Hmm. So they wanted him to make a marriage and I suppose have children. And so they would see heirs coming along. And he got in tow with somebody in Dublin and, um, they had a, a, which we didn't say a few minutes ago. In, in, in 1723, uh, Thomas was ennobled as a neural. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that there was a neraldom in the Fitzmaurice family. Uh, at that point, they really thought, you know, that if they were going to uh, take their place, you know, in the higher echelons of Irish aristocracy, they should have a Dublin house. So they leased a house in uh, uh, Stephen's Green in Dublin. And uh, it's on the the, um, the land where the Shelburne Hotel is now. Uh, Anne Petty's brother was the Earl of Shelburne. Uh, this was a he, he his land was in England really, but he also had a townhouse in Dublin in same place nearer to Grafton Street. The Fitzmaurice, because they had the townhouse, they went there obviously when the season was on and all the social life was in Dublin. There was no social life as you can imagine in Lexna. No. And um, the season was a parliamentary season. And during one of those periods, um, William, uh, Thomas's son now, uh, met up with a lady. They, he, she, they had an affair, basically, and they had one child from the affair. And he saw her just as a, a mistress, and it wouldn't have been his only mistress. She got it into her head that she, you know, that they would make a nice couple, and that she had an idea that he'd marry her. She was a widow. The mother in Lexna, whom had a very good relationship and was a very powerful lady, um, she was very good with all her children and, uh, you know, looking out for them and making certain they got had good marriages and that they had lived well. But um, she was absolutely, you know, really disappointed when she heard this story. And she was trying to influence the lady in Dublin. Mm-hmm. To, um, uh, she was called Elizabeth Leeson. End of the story was that Elizabeth Leeson made public or gave a public statement that they were married. And uh, William said, not at all. They never went through any marriage ceremony. So that time you didn't uh, have to actually go to church or anything like that to get married. So she said that uh, Elizabeth Leeson said that on three different occasions, they had promised each other that they would marry each other and they would never marry another. And she got uh, a kitchen maid in the house to uh, witness that. He disputed this and said, no, they weren't married at all. Mm. And um, it went to court. Uh, She lost the case the first time in Dublin. She appealed it in the English courts and she won it. And the English courts decided they were married and that they would, um, the recommendation from that case was that if he didn't uh, marry her in a church, you know, um, get a church blessing, as it were, uh, that he would be excommunicated. And he didn't marry her. She went, he went away to France. Everything kind of collapsed then because um, he couldn't marry anyone else because he's now married. Uh, his mother died. The father was absolutely going mad. But after, um, I think it was about three years, luckily for all of them, if you'd like to say that, Elizabeth Leeson died. So now he's free to marry. And he, he married okay. the Earl of Cavan's daughter. His father didn't like that. 
and he was able to put into the his will and into all of the deeds that they had between them that if if he didn't marry somebody that his father approved of he kind of lost some of his inheritance and she wouldn't get any marriage uh, portion they used to call it either why didn't he like it uh, i don't know what this what he, he said she came from a weak family just to go back you said that they're expecting william to become uh, member of Parliament. Well, it looks like it. You know, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't put all, right. all this the money into the education of somebody and sending them through the British school system ex- to expect them to come what? back to Lexna and look after the ninety thousand acres. You know, what would be the better? Uh, so at the time there were there were two parliaments, weren't there? Yes. There was the Irish Parliament and Westminster. And the, what would be the, what would be the benefit of being? In Westminster. Oh, well, Westminster, like the Parliament in Dublin was only like a county council, you know. Oh, really? So it was really just to extend the power of the family yeah, again, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would it have been hard to become a, an MP? Well, if he had the money and he had the contacts and he had a, this education behind him, it shouldn't. Later on, his first cousin, which we'll come to if we have time, uh, became the Prime Minister of England. OK, I guess I'm curious about how the Fitzmorrises were seen in the in wider society. Would it have been realistic for this guy to become an MP? Oh, it would be, it would, yeah. yeah. So what happened next in the life of William? What happened next? Uh, William, t- the father dies, William takes over mm. and um, he is only, he, well now he has money and he is his own boss, you know, he's nobody looking over his shoulder at him as it were. Uh, he has two children, right? Uh, they um, move out of that house that I'm talking about that was in, that was called Kerry House. Uh, he leased his own house around the corner in Molesworth Street. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with Dublin? Yeah, I am. Right. Okay. Well, Moser Street was just a new, it it wasn't actually there at all. You know, it was just opening up as a new place. And um, he uh, leased a big house there for his wife. They had two children. And later on, it became a really fashionable street because the Duke of Leinster built his house at the top of the street, which is now Dáil Éireann. So they're living there with the two children. Uh, when he inherits, he intends to go, obviously has to go back to Lexna to look after things. He just went between Lexna and Dublin, didn't spend a lot of time there. His wife didn't go there much at all, because if you can remember, the father didn't like her. So that, like historically, there was no, you know, she, I don't think there was any attraction to her to go to Lexna. So he was only um, in power, if that's the word for it, for seven years. Seven years after he became the second Earl, he died. Okay. Um, his son, Francis, now is left. He's only seven years of age. And the when the Francis was born in 1740, the grandfather, Thomas, the old and irascible man, mm. uh, because he didn't like the mother, I think it was, he said, oh, once he heard Francis was born, he said, the house of Lexna is no more. And that actually came to be in the end. You know, there was... Really? So Francis is brought, he's brought up, he's in Dublin. His mother, they, goes, they go down and there's nobody in the old court. They have somebody in, in living in their housekeepers and that. But it starts to go down. There's nobody looking after it. The agent that time was the same agent who had worked for the first man, Thomas, and had worked also for William. He was a good agent and he kept a good eye on the tenants and bringing the money in. But he died. And then after that, there was a succession of bad agents, some of them, were reputed to be um, dishonest. I can't say they were or not, you know what I mean? But this was the general opinion. And every place that the house started to kind of fall apart, 
and nobody was looking out for it. The mother, uh, Frances, is living in Dublin. As I said, he's seven years of age. A couple of years after his father died, the mother got married again and she took off to England. Okay. So he, he's left with his younger sister in Molesworth Street and the, um, what was it now? We, we call him the government, the, the, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland is his guardian and has to look after him. But in effect, there's just um, staff in the house uh, looking after the two of them, Francis and his sister, Anna Margareta. So just two children by themselves, is it? Yeah. But, you know, okay. we'll say he's seven or maybe eight or nine when the mother goes and the younger girl is younger than that. And um, he had a good tutor, as it turned out. Uh, now, they obviously have a funny kind of life, you know, living there. Um, his father, father is dead, the mother is married again and gone off, left them, gone off to England. He had a good tutor called Reeves and he actually, um, Francis himself, uh, went to Trinity College and he uh, graduated from Trinity College. Would that have been a normal level of education? Uh, for his, um, uh, at his, at his level, yes. Yeah, I have found two other people actually who graduated around the same time. So he graduated in 1758 and he was about 15 with a BA and an MA two years later. Um, the old court now is deserted. The, the, the valuable contents of the house were removed, um, furniture, paintings and silver, and um, they were either given mostly to the family. He lived there and he became, when he was 21, uh, it was 1761, and he then got control over everything. You know, he wasn't now under the guardianship of the Chancellor of Ireland anymore. He had money. He was a young fellow. Uh, what do you do if you have money? You're aristocratic. He's spoiled from, you know, living on his own. He started, you know, he started to enjoy all the amusements of the time. He went to the races. He was at the opera. Um, he, um, there's a very good word. Um, well, actually, the word now, uh, I borrow the word, if, if borrowed is the right word, from John Knightley, um, he liked carousing and wedging. Okay. Right? You're getting the picture? Yeah, I think so. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the first thing he does is he takes off for England. Now, I told you at the beginning, they had some um, investments in England, for instance, the um, coal mine in Durham. They probably had other ones that I'm, you know, I don't have specific details of. But um, in it, when he was 22, we suddenly discovered that there's a child there called Frances Dudley Fitzmaurice. Basically, he met an actress and they have an illegitimate child. And um, there's no approbation. Nobody kind of thinks anything wrong with this, really. So as long as he looks after them and he does, he gets um, a deed. You know, he settles an annuity of 300 a year on the child and the same on the mother. And the mother was to get this for her lifetime. Uh, the child was to get the 300 a year for the length of time he would be, while well, his education and that. And to give somebody an annuity at that time, the money had to come from somewhere distinct. So the money was to be paid out of rents of named townlands on the Fitzmaurice estate in Kerry. And the named townlands were Bale, Kilconley, the Stole and Dromlogok. Like nobody thought any of the worse for him, you know, because he this had happened. This was normal behaviour, really, for the nobility. No, there were obviously because he was had a big income. Uh, the father had something. Uh, I think was his father William, and I suppose you could say himself as well. They had roughly twenty thousand a year coming in from rents. That was twenty thousand in seventeen sixty. So that was a lot of money. And that was essentially for doing very little. He didn't have a, a large role. No, he didn't have anything. And he had a succession of bad agents, okay. all right? He has 
no, took no interest at this point, as far as we know, in what was going on down there. What happened next? He had, them, um, as I said, aristocratic mothers would have been delighted to get him for their daughters uh, because he had everything they wanted. He had money and he had a title. But he met a lady um, called Anastasia Daly. Uh, she was 20 years older than Francis. And um, she was a Catholic originally. And again, you go back to the questions you asked me. She was a Catholic from Galway. And she was already married to a Charles Daly. He was a member of the Irish House of Commons. She was also an heiress in her own right. And this is very important to the story. Uh, what her own right means is that, that when her father died, he left her 500 a year for herself. Because that time, a lady didn't have money. Her money was her husband's money. Or, you know, it was her husband who could do whatever he wanted with it. Now, when I said she was a Catholic from Galway, she was. But when she inherited the land from her father, she conformed. Do you understand about conforming? No, I, I haven't heard the word. You're right. Okay, well, that's like it's a, it's a main word in Irish history. To conform, she conformed as a Protestant. Okay. She said, I'm not a Catholic anymore. So hold on, that will hold on to the land. Her father had done the same thing in Galway before that. But they were Catholics, all right? Right. So they would just go through the motions and saying, I, I'm going to conform. So she had done that. Now, she had two sisters married, and they were married into the Irish aristocracy, I suppose you'd call them. Uh, one was the Earl of Louth and the other one was Viscount Kingsland. Anyway, they, herself and Francis started getting about, if we'd like to call it that, in Dublin. And um, Anastasia's husband would only come to Dublin to attend the Parliament. Uh, but he wanted her to come back. They lived in Lockray, County Galway. And she kept asking her to come back and she was making excuses. She couldn't go. Her doctor didn't want her to go and things. And uh, eventually he came and he told her she had to go back. And um, reluctantly she went. Now, she took her lady's maid and, you know, her clothes and her jewellery and all that, and she went back to Loch Ray. This is where the £500 a year comes in handy mm. to, to her, in that she was able to arrange that she could escape and get away from him. And with the connivance, really, of the girl who's still back in Dublin, she and her maid, they got somebody to come from Dublin on horseback. Uh, she went out for a walk from the, with her maid from the house, she was picked up by the horseman. She rode by horseback to her mother's home, which was maybe 15 or 20 miles away from Loch Ray, and she escaped from him, basically. Now, she left everything behind. And in later years, like we have seen the, the where she went to court, they tried to get back her jewels and her clothes, and she had listed them all out, like what her jewels were. So this was a big scandal. She, uh, once she went to stay with her mother, after that she left there and she went, she went to England. And, of course, she met up again with Francis in England, mm. the Earl. And uh, will I go on? Yeah, no, this is great. <laughs> right. She, uh, they lived in England for the next 10 years. They met, oh, yes, sorry. Um, her husband went mad and he uh, took a court case. This is the big, this is, was the start of the rot in Lexna, really. He took a court case against the Earl, uh, Earl Francis, we call him, so that you'll understand who it is. And um, he's for criminal, what was called criminal conversation. That was like having knowledge of his wife and withdrawing her services from the husband. And um, Francis didn't defend it at all. Anastasia didn't appear as court case, obviously, either. But the servants on both sides did. And they give is, you know, really racy information to the court about what they saw and what they didn't see and what happened. And, you know, right. so there was lots of stories about people with their breeches down or petticoats up in the air and things. <laughs> And the end of the story was that the court decided that uh, Daly was in his rights to sue for the criminal conversation 
and they awarded him £5,000 plus costs. But the £5,000 at that time was £970,000 now. So Francis, because of his um, association with Anastasia, now was in, you know, was in debt for 970. It turned out it was over a million by the time he paid the cost. That has we got from somewhere. So money, money was borrowed and money in the, some of the parts of the estate were not, they weren't sold at this point. They were leased or, you know, the, the lease was sold. The two of them went to England and they got married there. But from there on in then, um, from that until she died in the uh, 1790s, they just spent and spent and um, squandered the money really. Uh, on beautiful houses and, be, and mostly on beautiful furniture and entertainments for themselves and entertaining others. It, firstly, in England, in London and in Bath, all of the documents uh, to back up all of these things are in the National Archives in Paris. So, it's, you know, it's, it's first hand information. Uh, funnily, um, like once he, 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 after the marriage and having to kind of get him, his act together, because money wasn't going to keep coming in if nobody was collecting it down in Kerry. He um, got a new agent. This agent, his father had been the agent for Francis's grandfather. He knew the area well. He was uh, absolutely honest. He was a very hard worker and he was infinitely patient with Francis because Francis was very um, spoiled and very demanding. And uh, all he was interested in was getting more money back from Kerry to keep him in the manner to which he had wanted to be accustomed. So basically they lived in, as I said, in, in London and Bath. Now, what Francis really wanted was to be accepted by the British aristocracy and particularly to be ex- his, his first cousin. And I'll explain that. His first cousin uh, is in the British Parliament and he was the Earl of Shelburne. So if we go right back to Thomas, I told you Thomas had two sons, William, whom he didn't get on with, the one whom we inherited, mm. and the younger yeah. one, John, whom he did get on with. And John had a stroke of luck and that he inherited his mother's brother's uh, land and titles. There was nobody else to inherit them. So John becomes the Earl of Shelburne and his son then becomes the Prime Minister of England, William, Earl of Shelburne. So our man, the Earl of Francis, is in London at the same time. So he's kind of vying with the petty Fitzmaurice man. Mm. They're both building a bigger house than the other one. You know, that kind of thing is going on. Uh, he wanted Anastasia. He was very fond of Anastasia. They were, he was faithful to her all his life. They seemed to get on really well. He wanted her to be accepted. But, you know, the, the, the scandal was attached to them, of this marrying this older Irish Catholic. And I, I think that didn't work out for him, even though it seems they had a very um, a successful um, partisan all kind, you know, all that kind of stuff. And she was even presented at court. They still felt they weren't being accepted what, by the British. What does that mean, to be presented at court? It's a huge thing. Um, this was going on up to the 1960s, I'd say. So ladies uh, of um, who were from only the most aristocratic families in the, in the kingdom, as they used to call it, in England, mm. they wouldn't go out to society, as they called it, until they were presented at court. And then it meant that you know, they'd obviously make a very good marriage and they'd meet other people who were at the same level as themselves. You'd have to look up that one now. It's too much for me to okay. explain. All right. <laughs> presented at court. But she was presented at court, which was like normally you would imagine um, because there were very strict rules and there was a rigid, there was a rigid society there then. You know, there was things you did and things you didn't do and things you could get away with and things you couldn't. Mm. 
But mm-hmm. um, even though she was presented King George III and her, all their homes and backgrounds, uh, you know, to entertaining and impressing, it just seems that the London aristocrats just didn't seem to be impressed. So at the, um, they used to go abroad then every year they used to go to spa. It's uh, It was a real, like the spa we know now, but in Belgium. And there they met the crowned heads of Europe and I think Francis kind of began to think really they were wasted in England and he knew that the, the, the scandal of the case and the divorce and all the rest of it would kind of follow him for the rest of his life. So they decided they'd go to Paris and they would go there in a temporary basis first. But they got on so well there, they stayed. Okay. Am I going too fast for you? No, this is great. So they would have been considered, um, they would have been recognised in Paris, would they? Well, you see, they were because again, they were uh, they had loads of money. They were at least... They were spending loads of money. So they only lived in the best houses. You know, they had um, huge, big mansions of houses. She actually, you see, this is more of the Catholic and the Protestant. She actually had her own chaplain, Catholic chaplain. Really? Even though she has confirmed as a Protestant, if you remember, to get to keep her land, okay? Uh, but they, they went through five different houses there and they furnished each of them better than the rest. And we have the receipts for the furniture. And they only got the best um, architects, you know, the ones that, have their names have come down through the centuries, you know, as famous architects and that. They on leaving London, they um, procured a fantastic carriage, you know, to take them from A to B. And on the sides of the carriage were the Kerry, it was called the Kerry um, coat of arms. It was his, you know, the Fitzmaurice coat of arms. And uh, so they went, you know, every morning with men with powder. They brought some staff from England with them, her lady's maid. And I think he brought um, his valet. Um, they powdered coachmen, one at either side. You know, they would go down the Champs-Élysées on their morning ride in the, the carriage. Uh, so people, you know, were looking at them and admiring them and all the rest of it. They got the court of Marie Antoinette and Louis. And she, um, we have all the bills they had for clothes and wigs and furniture and catering and food that they had to eat at the catering. Both of them really only uh, shopped at places that were appointed by either the king or the queen. So, you know, you'd see um, uh, a bill for clothes for Anastasia and they would be supplied by uh, Madame Barton and she would be the um, dressmaker to La, Margit, La Reine to Marie Antoinette. And the same with uh, Francis, you know, all his clothes. And uh, yes, he was very big into books, buying books, book binding, uh, so they had a very good life in Paris, and but of course as they went along, the, the revol- you know the people started in Paris weren't happy with their lot. Um, the revolution started brewing in the background, and they didn't seem to kind of notice, or if they did, they didn't take any notice. They just kept carrying on as normal, um, whining and dining. Um, she had what's called a salon on the Champs Elysees. Champs Elysees, sorry. Um, it was supposed to be like some books would say it was very smart, one of the smartest there, but I, I didn't find any um, proof of that really. There were other leading ladies of the court and they had uh, salons and generally speaking, they were mistresses of the major names right. associated with the French Revolution. She wasn't able for that. But they were holding these, these salons, you know, they were kind of talking shops really. They were holding them in these beautiful houses fantastically furnished with the best of food and wine, you know. So everybody went along to them and they seemed to do very well on the social scene there. At one point, uh, the treaty, you know, the American Revolution was on around this time while they were there. And um, they 
people, the Americans who were involved in the revolution and the counterparts, the British uh, government who were um, trying to make a deal with them, uh, they both start, it's a bit like the Brexit now, they went to Paris to do their negotiations to fix up uh, a peace treaty. And it was Francis first cousin, William, Earl of Shelburne, who was the prime minister at that particular point. So there was a lot of social um, outings in Paris, you know, to do with that, with Benjamin Franklin was there. There were a lot of big names coming and going. In all, all this time, money uh, is being, you know, he's looking for money from Kerry. Now, there's a huge amount, and I haven't put much in the book because you can only do so much. Um, so there's a lot of, of uh, writing there. And, and I always feel that what I did really was to open up the lives of these three to other people come in on various aspects, either the political, the land, uh, the different aspects that need really uh, in-depth examinations. So Francis seems to know everything at this point about the land in Lexnam. He's constantly, Christopher Julian, sorry, Reverend Christopher Julian is the land agent. He's writing to uh, Christopher Julian. Christopher Julian is writing back to him. They're discussing every town land who was there, how, what, uh, were their, what were their rents, what um, length of lease does the person have, are they paying, uh, what's to do about so-and-so who's not paying. And then you begin to ask yourself, why did he only wake up to that late in the day? You know, why didn't he do that earlier hmm. uh, when he could have been saved type of thing? So as time went on, he just started selling. The, he didn't sell the, the actual land in the beginning. He sold a, a title to it, a lease to it. But eventually, by 1783, he, he sold the entire what was left to a man called Richard Hayer, who later became the Earl of Listowel. And he made a big deal with Richard Hayer in the how much I think he got. We just see now. Now he just got about fourteen thousand, which doesn't sound a lot. Now it would be equivalent to two 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 million five hundred thousand. But you must understand, he sold a lot of it already. But he also got paid um, in this. He made a deal with Hayer and he was to get 3000 a year as long as he lived. Now, that was a lot of money then. And Anastasia would get 2000 as long as she lived. So um, that was it. They got they, He started to spend that money, I suppose. And then the next thing is uh, the whole Parisian and the revolution went out of control. And they didn't they just didn't seem to notice they were still continuing on what they're doing. Uh, but. After the, um, what do I mean now? In 1792, anyway, he determined he better leave France. Uh, it, things got really bad. Um, there was a story that they, inside their window one day, they saw, um, I can't remember her name now, a countess. She, she was a friend of Marie Antoinette's and her head passed on a pike outside the window. And they had, they were very friendly with this lady, um, the Princess Lambal, she was called. And they took fright then and they thought they better get out of Paris because it was about time. So then they discovered that uh, they were at war with England, France was, and they didn't have a passport and they couldn't get one to leave France. They had to leave the beautiful carriage and everything they had behind. And I think he thought that they'd just go and this would probably all blow over. So they, they, at the very last minute they got out without a passport. They couldn't leave, as I said, so they went to Brussels. And they stayed in Brussels for the next maybe a year, year and a half. And he was constantly writing back and trying to find out how was he going to get everything he had, which he'd left behind, his paperwork, his furniture, his silver, his paintings, everything was left behind. He wasn't getting anywhere with that. And I think he began to realise after about a year and a half, like this is more serious, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's not going anywhere for him. Furthermore, 
two servants that he left behind to mind his stuff, they were taken and they were be, um, beheaded. So they left Brussels eventually and they went back to London and they leased a house in London. Now, you must remember, they have this money coming in from Hayer all this time. Mm. They were only there four years when Anastasia died. You must remember she was 20 years older than him when they got married. She was buried then in Westminster Abbey, which is the Church of England, back with the Church of England again, right? Prime, you know, it's, it's the, big, the, the, the big cathedral in London. Furthermore, she was buried in a place called the Chapel of St. Andrew, and I've been there to see that myself. And she's buried very near the royal tombs, which are in the next chapel to her. Like, it's a big, huge place, and there are lots of different tombs there. But I think the point I'm making is that she was buried in a very prominent place beside where Queen uh, Elizabeth I and Queen Mary are buried. And uh, I read later that in 1909, a visitor from Kerry uh, went there and um, he met one of the vergers. And the verger told him that only in four instances where remains are interred in a cenotaph. I have the photograph of the cenotaph in that. Only in four instances where the remains were interred in the cenotaph over the floor, they were Edward the Confessor, Henry the Third, Howard the First, and the Earl of Kerry. Okay. Yeah. So Anastasia is buried there. Um, in eighteen oh seven, he only resigned as governor of Kerry, even though he'd done nothing, absolutely nothing, like for the previous uh, forty years. He spent the remaining years pursuing his claims on the French government. And he didn't get them before he died. He died in 1818 and he was buried supposedly in the same coffin as her. This is what he asked for, but he was buried definitely in the same tomb as her anyway. And the direct line now of the family became extinct because they didn't have any children. Right. Uh, so the, the uh, what was left was maybe a couple of acres around Exna. The um, land in uh, Canterbury was left and the coal mine in Durham. And his first cousin, again, the same first cousin, the Petty Fitzmaurice's, inherited that. And it was very valuable to them. While they bemoaned the loss of what they called the land that had, you know, what their ancestors had got in the time of Henry II, you know, that were there since the Normans, they actually did better out of getting the coal mine in Durham because the Industrial Revolution started in England and coal was huge and no, very important. So that's about it. So uh, there's piles more, like, but that's the, the, the you know. No, that's great. Just one question: Do you know what was happening on the ground in Lexnor without any sort well, of? Well, you've got new. Te- you've got news is what I'm saying, and this I said this in the conclusion. You've got new landlords now. Yeah, they're there from about eighteen, uh, sorry, seventeen, eighteen, three onwards. Uh, Lord Stoll was okay. Uh, some of them were quite good. There was a large army through it. He was quite good. But what happened in later years, like a hundred years later, when their children and grandchildren inherited, they're all living in England. Mm. So they appoint agents. And some of these agents were notorious in, in the following years. OK, well, I think we'll leave it there. But that was a, it's a really good drama to that whole family saga, isn't there? Well, everybody says it would make a great Netflix. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you always yeah. wouldn't believe it. Yeah. yeah. So you see, you 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 went from. I think you, when you started asking me the questions about what way did they feel, you know, about their the tenants feel about the boss and things, you know, or the landlord. You're in the era of the uh, the the nineteenth century, when there was yeah. land wars yeah. and there was you know all of that things and there were very um, some terrible evictions and. 
Uh, this was the, the, these were the non-resident landlords in the main. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point that the landlords really did live in their own world that was completely yeah. separated from the people on the ground, which is really useful for us. We're, um, the play we're working on is about a family moving out of Lixnaw onto a new farmland. And we were sort of trying to think how, what relationship will they've had with Fitzmaurice's. But, I mean, it's pretty obvious now to us that they would have had none, that they're living in two completely different spheres of, of the world. Yeah, you know? the good, yeah. 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 Uh, just you have to think as well, I'm a genealogist, mm. and um, you know, I didn't put any of this in, but I'm a genealogist, and I get people all the time, and while they're talking about maybe their great-grandfather or whatever it is going back, they actually forget that they lived in a totally different era. Like somebody did bring up, I think it was Joe Harrington, and I know this from my own family, um, the lack of roads. How did anybody get from anywhere? How did the uh, Willem go to Dublin for the season? You know, it took him two or three days to go from Lexnow to Dublin. Uh, and that was, you know, supposedly like up good roads. Most of the, a lot of the business in Kerry was done by water. You know, they went out around um See, you know, they they went to Clare or they went to, it was by Bush really. Mm. Um, what else? No, that these are kind of things. So if you have somebody, if you the, the play you're doing, if you have somebody moving to anybody, uh, how far could you? How would you travel between even Lexna and where are you thinking the family might you might have them? Which uh, Lyre Crumpon would be there. Lyre Crumpon. Well, I know about that. You you could go from Lexna to Lyre Crumpon because you went over the Stax Mountains. It was the only way to go. Right. Uh, so, you, you you know, I know somebody um, whom I was tracing with some men. It wasn't my ancestor, but there were relations of my ancestors. And I said, well, how did they get married to somebody from Lixna, right? Mm. Um, well, they had, they had to go horseback. They either walked or they went on horseback. Like, you have to keep going back saying to yourself, well, they didn't have a bike. They didn't have a car. They didn't have a horse and car. Now, the, the, if you were in the, if you were a Fitzmaurice, you probably had a carriage, Mm. You know, but the ordinary men in the, didn't have one. You have to think of the kind of houses they lived in, uh, what they had to eat. You know, you have to really go really back and say what was what was there then. Yeah, we were reading about the housing, and it seems like a lot of people lived in in turf housing or in mud housing, mm. which is something yeah. we didn't expect because. Yeah. You know, well, you you have you have the figures, have you about the famine in eighteen fifty? Was a, I don't know how many what percentage which you could look it up lived in what's called a fourth class house. What's that term? A fourth class house. Okay. Yeah, Google that. How many people in Ireland lived in a fourth class house at the time of the famine, at the time of Griffith's valuation? Very easy to see. A fourth class class house was basically maybe a one roomed house. Like the the, the the animals lived in it as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, thanks very much for doing All this. All right. You're welcome.